Take your Bibles, if you have them, and turn to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. You know, it's been a wonderful thing to have multiple voices uh, sharing the Scripture the past four or so weeks. Uh, we've been working through, a, a number of our, our guys have been working through Philippians, and you know, it was great recently to have um, Joel and, um, and then uh, Kevin and Josiah um, sharing, uh, sharing God's Word. Did I miss somebody? Oh, um, uh, Cole spoke as well. Yep, have Cole here from from CityGate. It was uh, it's it's really been a joy, and that really is what the church is about. It's what ministry about is about, and it's equipping one another uh, to do the work of the ministry. You know, that's that is what we're about. Um, there is, uh, I believe, this Saturday. There's a there's one of these sessions. So there's been a number of guys we trained in Philippians uh, in the the Bible study principles last summer, and so there was a number of guys from that that, that said, hey, we, we're interested in preaching, so I announced that at the end and said, hey, if you're interested in this, we'll go through it, and so they have, they have been meeting and doing what's called a do session, um, and there's one last session that's this Saturday, I believe at 9 o'clock, I believe it's 9 o'clock here, and I, that's, that's, we announced yesterday to the, the men that came to the brunch um, to review the build conference um, and uh, that that was just open. So if you're interested in what that's about and you just want to sit in on one of those, um, you're welcome to come to that and, uh, and be a part of that um, as we have one more section in Philippians till we finish the book. And basically from summer to summer, we've now preached through that entire book of Philippians, and that has, that has happened by um, individuals um, here, men in the church. So our men have preached through that um, entire book of Philippians, and that is a, a wonderful thing that that's happening um, in in the church. It was really um, a wonderful thing. Um, four weeks ago, I had the opportunity to to preach in a church plant in which I was the the coach of the the church planter in Dearborn, um, and then to preach at at Citygate Church um, three weeks ago, and then our family took a, a week of vacation. And so we were, we were out and uh, to be able to, to visit a church in Florida that we spent um, uh, four weeks in last year. Um, they were in Matthew last year, and um, Cole was preaching. John Gilfillan was here while we were away. He was preaching at CityGate. And so we would listen to him. We'd listen to, to Northbridge in the morning. We then would go to church. And they were in Matthew, and it just so happened they were in Matthew in the same exact passage that CityGate was in, and so we got Matthew twice, so when we were away last year, we, had, we went to three services and enjoyed them all on, on Sunday. They were finishing Matthew um, when uh, we, we went uh, back, and then um, had the opportunity to attend church as well while we were in Chicago this past weekend, um, and that was just a, just a blessing. So we're, we are in Psalm 4, Psalm 104. Um, what we see in this particular psalm is that we see some forms. I want you to, to understand that God works with forms. There is a created order to the world. There is a created order and purpose. God created the world in a particular way with particular forms. There's an order and purpose in anyone or anything that acts against the purpose, the created purpose 
essentially tries to undo the good creation that God has established in the world. God's forms are important. We'll see that this psalm, Psalm 104, actually it's a continuation of Psalm 103 and it goes right to Psalm 106. The reason that I wanted to focus on God's covenant is these are covenantal psalms. They're they're psalms reminding us that God keeps his covenant. You'll notice that Psalm 103 and Psalm 104 fit together. How do we know this? Well, it's a, it's a principle that we have in Bible study. You look at the beginning and the end, what we call it the top and the tail. Look at Psalm 103. How does that begin? Bless the Lord, O my soul. How does that end? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Guess how Psalm 104 begins? Bless the Lord, O my soul. And how does Psalm 104 end? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, this what you're going to see is that this is a history from creation um, all the way through the history of Israel. And it is chronicling the fact that God keeps his promises, that he works in particular ways, that God actually says, I'm going to work this way. I'm going to do these things. And so there are people that say, well, you know, I don't want to put God in a box. Well, in some ways, God puts himself in the box. He's, He's not bound by anything, but when he says... By his sovereignty, I'm going to work this. By his boundless sovereignty, I will work this way. Then he will work this way. And he is keeping his covenant. What what we're seeing here is that there are particular forms or particular ways that God works that are in and through creation. Now, we're going to read the psalm, but I want to tell you that Psalm 104 is known as the Pentecost Psalm. Huh. So the church, this is where church history is really helpful in interpreting the scriptures and how God's people have looked at the scriptures for a long period of time. We say, well, wait, this is a psalm about creation. Well, yes, it's a psalm about creation. And we'll see that the Spirit of God was intricate into creation, it is the Spirit of God that is intricate in the new creation. God is working in particular ways, in particular forms. He works his way in creation, but he also says that he's working in the world today through the power of the cross, through the power of Jesus, and in what form does he work today? It is through God's covenant people, the church. So Psalm 104 for the history of the church has been a psalm that usually is the call to worship on Pentecost Sunday, a creation psalm. Um, And and so we see that God is working. In fact, what you will see is that, um, and we don't have time to go into this, but that what we see is we'll see the days of creation. Psalm 104 goes back to say God works in particular way. He spoke by his word and his word brings about newness, transformation, and we see both here in, in, in Psalm 104, but we see forms in Psalm 104 that go back to Genesis, but also that those forms are actually carried through. There is a creation form that's carried through right through Acts chapter 2. And so we don't, maybe that's something that you can, you can trace 
and look and read those passages and say, what do these things have in common? Because clearly the scriptures are linking creation to the praise of God in creation to his work in the new creation through God's people, the church. Are, God's, are the forms in scripture important? The answer is absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to get to that. Let me, let me read the psalm for you. And then I, I want to introduce I want to give some um, framework introduction. So that's another Bible study term. Um, we want to just look at some of the framework that we may have coming into this text that's very important if we're going to understand what the text has to say to us today. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they may not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. They sing, um, uh, or they sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered Abundantly, The cedars of Lebanon that he planted, in them the birds build their nests. The stork has a home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it's night. When all the, the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to work and to his labor until the evening. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go ships and the Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. 
When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you opened your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have being. May, may my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord. O oh, my soul, praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so here we see this creation psalm, um, a theme that is repeated along with God's covenant keeping and his redemption throughout these psalms here. Psalm 104, this marvelous psalm. But um, when, when you think about coming to this creation psalm, we have to think about what, what do we do with this? What are you going to do with a creation psalm? that magnifies God the creator. What do modern Christians do with a creation psalm? It's an interesting question, isn't it? What do you, if, if this was around your family table in your devotions with your spouse, what would your application be to this creation psalm? Well, the answer to that is it all depends. It all depends on what your framework is and what you're really coming to the text with. Um, so I want to illustrate to you, I realize, like, if there's anybody watching from home, I'm going to be over here for a minute. <laughs> um, that you have framework, and I just want to use this as an illustration, just to be a, a mindful placeholder for us. Because there are, um, when it comes to the framework, I, I want to talk about three baskets. I want to introduce framework in, in three ways uh, of thinking in coming to the text. And now, the text ought to do what? The text ought to correct our framework. It ought to set our framework, right? And, and it does that. It needs to correct our framework. Well, well today, and, and these ideas are not my own. I'm not smart enough to figure these kinds of things out. Um, but we have, um, in our day, three kinds of buckets or baskets. We'll just call this one over here to, to your left. Right? A, a biblical framework that says God is the creator. God is sovereign. He's spoken everything by his word into being. Um, it looks at the Bible and what is literal in the Bible. It takes literally. God created and it came into being. You have a second bucket when it comes to framework. And what we're going to call this, we're going to call this the rational bucket. Um, we're going to call this the, the rational bucket. And so the rationalist um, and, and the Christian, they, they do get along, or at least have for a long period of time, because Christianity is rational, it's reasonable. Um, but there's, there's um, this, middle, this middle position um, where um, it's more of a clockwork position. Well, the universe is kind of like a clock that some creator... Put, put it together, wound it up, and has stepped back and walked away. 
Now, this kind of rational thinking where reason, man's reason, is elevated to the utmost, and we would call this a a reason or even a scientific worldview. I don't like that because I see in this psalm good science. I see not the cultic kind of Christian science, but I see Christian science in this psalm. Um, but this, this, the reason, the rational position might even say, well, it's, it's rational to think that maybe this world was billions of years old and was sort of this goop that exploded and over time has changed and maybe there's some reasonable things that our mind can comprehend to put that all together and and that even could be uh, there could be a creator we just can't know who he is but reason in mankind is is elevated you see these 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 worldviews the the rational worldview though is, is not really stable Um, for it's given way to what we'll call the pagan worldview. The the first two um, actually see that there is a God, the Christian worldview, who is outside of creation or outside. The middle one at least posits some kind of designer, possibly. But the last one, this pagan worldview, says, no, there's no God outside of creation, creation is God. Creation is God. God's inside of creation. There is no God outside of that. It has fully, it has fully embraced an evolutionary worldview. That, that is the pagan worldview. It has fully embraced the worldview because now the world becomes plastic, or I think a better term, and the kids will understand this, it's become like silly putty. You know, it's moldable, shapeable, right? Silly putty was a lot more popular, I think, when I was a kid. And it was a lot more popular when I was a kid because you could take the comics from the newspaper, which most of you don't know what that is, right? <laughs> comics in a newspaper. I think you know what a newspaper is, but comics in a And you could take silly putty and you could, you know, shape it and you could actually like peel. Did anybody else do this? Okay, good. You know what I'm talking about. You would like print the, and they would imprint on the silly putty. That's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the substance itself. It shapes. It molds. So therefore, there is nothing that is created with a particular purpose in mind, but rather everything is material and everything is shaped by what? Whatever I want it to be. Here's where I want to challenge our framework. Where do you think most Christians are? I think a lot of evangelicals are here in the middle. It's rational, reasonable. take what I want, but I would say actually most of them are actually in the middle. How do you know this? I know this by the forms of scripture. I know this by the way the world is treating God's good creation. 
You see, because the world wants to say God's good creation can be whatever we determine it to be. It is socially determined. But I also know this is because Christians in the church say the same thing about God's covenant and God's covenant people. We are far more parachurch than we are church. A parachurch is not all bad. But we pick and we choose of what we want, and then we take that and we shape that to our desires. I want this, and if it doesn't meet my need, then I'm going to find something else. That is utterly pagan. We, we are living in a religious worldview of plasticity that is no different. See, what Christians want to do with the church and how God has chosen to form and shape people, God's people spiritually, the, what, what the Bible calls that is idolatry. Idolatry is paganism. And here we stand and we criticize homosexual marriage and all of those kinds of things when there is hypocrisy in the church. And so we come to a creation psalm. And what this creation psalm is, it, it wakes us up. Because what we see in creation are the immovable forms described by God. I want us to see, and I don't have time to take this Psalm 104 and go to Pentecost. I'm going to trust the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the church to make that move. But I want to start at least at Psalm 104 and look at creation. And as we look at creation, I think you're going to start to see how we ought to look at the world around us. And by teaching us how we should look at the world around us, it's going to teach us how we ought to look at what God's doing in the world of God's people, in the world of sinners and redeemed here today. He's transforming it with the same power that brought creation into being, which creation itself shapes our life, doesn't it? Yes. The creation has the ability to change things for good, or if you drove on the icy roads unexpectedly this morning, for nearly tragedy, <laughs> right? We can't get away from the fact that we are shaped. But yet there is this illusion, isn't it? among us that somehow everything is in our control. You know, I think we've learned, yet I think there's still striving. I think we've learned in the last two years with a pandemic that everything is not in our control. But yet we still want to live with that illusion. God is in control. We need to obey God. We need to submit to his forms and shapes from the word of God revealed to us in scripture. Let's get to it. We've got um, three points. We're gonna see the great creator in verses one through four. We're gonna see six miracles of creation. What is amazing about this psalm is 
what we see is creation, right? It's the description, and you actually have a parallel to Genesis chapter 1 in this particular, and you can go back and you can look. I won't go and make all of those ties back to Genesis chapter 1, but we're going to see these six miracles of creation, and then we're going to see God's spirit and new creation in verses 31 through 35. So there's this tie together between creation and new creation, between creation and redemption, right? So um, let's, let's dive in verses 1 through 4. The great creator says, O Lord, my God, you are very great. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. And then it begins to describe God. Is God clothed? He is not. So it's using words that we understand um, to describe the majesty and splendor of God. You're clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens as a tent. And so we see this God who is amazing and expansive, covered in light. And he says he lays his beams, or he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. And so these waters are water vapor, and God is riding through the heavens in a chariot. We know that God doesn't ride actually in a chariot, but we're seeing him as this great God, the king. And he says he rides the wings of the wind. And there's some connections here, too, to, um, to Acts chapter 2. And he says, he makes his messengers the winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Here the, we see that God is um, the God of the cosmic God of the heavens, um, who is moving on the wings of the wind. Right? And it's his messengers. Here we see that he makes his messengers. Who are the messengers of God? They're angels. Right? And his ministers. Who are the ministers? We are his ministers. But did you ever think on a windy day, the angels must be busy? It's what the Bible's telling us, isn't it? The angels must be busy. It's a windy day. Right? Where does, the Bible says, where does the wind come from? We don't know. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it goes. And we cannot fathom the wisdom and the thoughts of God. Oh, yes, we can, we can explain the wind from this bucket. Right? And we should... Right? Adam did science. He named the animals. So did Solomon. It is kingly to use your mind and gifting to work in the world and understand how the world works. But it must be connected to the creator God. So yes, we can explain the wind to a certain degree. But when we get to the end of our wisdom, that's when we get to the beginning of the wisdom of God. And we say, well, it must be angels. It's the wind. So here we see the greatness of the great creator. God speaks and everything comes into being and it sets the stage. Here's God in the beginning. God, verse 5, created. He set the earth on its foundations. And what we're seeing here that God creates the earth and the sea in verses 5 through 9. He set the earth on its foundations so that it shall never be moved. You covered 
it with the deep as a garment, and the waters stood above the mountains. What do you have? You have the waters of the deep. You have, you have just water in this, and but yet the mountains are, are covered. And you rebuked, and they fled. It's the separating. What? It's the separating of the, the dry land from the waters. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. And what happened? The mountains rose, the valleys sank, and the place you, in the place you appointed for them, you set boundary. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. Here you have imagery, both creation probably imagery as well of of the flood where God is absolutely in control of all the water and the land in the in the entire in the entire world and it's where God says that the the water is to end the water ends and the land begins and he's the one who sets the mountains in place but when we talk about the water that covers the earth we're talking mostly about what the sea we're talking about mostly the ocean. And here we see that God, in verses 10 through 13, does what? He, he now turns to not just seawater, but now fresh water, but in a, in a particular way. Notice that we're going to see in creation that these forms have a function, that God creates water. He sets the boundaries for the sea, but also he provides what? He provides fresh water. You make the springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They do what? They give drink to every beast of the field. God has designed the world in such a way that there, are, there is fresh water that waters the valleys, that feeds the animals. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. And then notice that these waters do what? They, they, there's flourishing beside them. The birds of heaven dwell. They sing among the branches. We have a little of that going on here in March in Michigan. That's beautiful. You can, I know you can hear that because you're waking up to it in the mornings now. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. And notice here, it says, the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You know, we can do what Adam did is we can put order in creation. Right? We can have dominion over creation, but one thing that we cannot do is improve upon it. You can't. It's not plastic. It's not what we can make it. We can't improve upon it. Why? The way God created things, the Bible here says the earth is satisfied with what? The, what comes out of the forms that God created. It is satisf- it's satisfied. Listen, if you look for the forms in Scripture and then you allow yourself to be formed by the way that God is shaping the world by his creation and by his spirit, what the Bible says is you too will be satisfied, even as the earth is satisfied. So we see um, also that God provides for all his creatures. So he provides fresh water for all creation and there's flourishing. He provides for all of his creatures in verses 14 through 18. Notice he says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate and that he may bring forth fruit, food 
from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Calvin comments on, on this particular psalm. He says this, in these words, we are taught that God not only provides for man's necessity and bestows upon them as much as is sufficient for the ordinary purposes of life, but in that his, in that his goodness, he deals more bountifully with them by giving um, them a wine to cheer their hearts and, and healing oil. And we see here that God provides plants for man to cultivate. He gives him the necessities. But then the description is food from the earth, right? Wine is used in celebration. It is speaking of, so so it's using this imagery of feasting. So there's food, but then it goes and says, but wait, there's, there's abundance here. Wine to gladden the heart of man. There's also healing, what was oil used for? It had many different purposes, but it says here, oil for the face, the oil that is placed on someone. It's oil for healing and bread to strengthen man's heart. It's, it's, it is this kind of healing and feasting that does what? It, it doesn't strengthen simply. That first line is the strengthening of his muscles, Right? He gives plants for man to cultivate that he may bring food from the earth. But the rest is about God doing what? Strengthening the inner man, the heart of man. God's created creation in such a way that it owes himself to him that even creation. In creation, if we are acknowledging God by faith, it strengthens our heart. And then notice the trees are watered with are watered abundantly. So it's going to the north of Israel, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. And then notice, notice here, like it's not just mankind, it's all creation that God's providing for. In these cedars, what? The birds build their nest. The stork in the fir trees. The mountains for the wild goats. The rocks for the rock badgers. What is God doing? He's providing homes. Places of refuge. He's providing for all creation. The next miracle of creation is that he makes the moon and the sun, darkness and light. In verses 19 through 23, he made the moon to mark the seasons. Now, this is important because in the ancient Near East, what, were the, what gods were worshipped? You can't begin to study... Um, um, the ancient Near East without studying the gods of the Babylonians, the Persians, the Egyptians, uh, and all those different people. And you'll see that they worshipped the moon, the stars, the sun. But what does it say here? God made the moon to do what? Its function, to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. And so you have these celestial objects, and it says you made the darkness and it's night. And notice here what happens when all the beasts of the forest creep about. And I love this next line. Right? See, there's form and there's function. God's creating and there's form and there's function. And the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. And I remember taking our kids to the 
to the zoo. And we were in the Philadelphia Zoo, I believe it was. And, and Cole, who preached a few weeks ago, he'd have to have what he called all his guys, which was a bag, of, a huge bag of plastic animals. And uh, which one actually came in common. It was a snake, or uh, came in really handy. It was a snake. We were in the reptile display. It's really dark and it's like a dome. I threw that sucker way up high and walked away and it came down in the middle of that dome like a thwack and it cleared the place. It was wonderful. But we weren't there. We were at the, we were at the, uh, we were at the, um, the lion's cage and he, Cole had his lion out. Have you, like, we were close to this lion. Have you ever heard a lion roar close up? It is ear-splitting. It is awe-inspiring. That, that, that uh, a sound that loud can come. I mean, it's a big beast, but the roar of a lion is much bigger. Now, what does the Bible say that that lion is doing? Well, I think it's a wonderful English play on words. He is praying, and he's praying. So when we think of a lion roaring, what is he doing? Well, the Bible tells us right here. He's seeking their food from God. Right? That's, that's a wonderful image when you go to pray before a meal. Now listen, don't make the prayers long before a meal because we like our food hot and we want to be thankful still by the end of your prayer. Make your prayer like a lion's roar. Be thankful and be done. But be thankful. Make it big. Make it joyous. Make it sincere. Like a lion saying, thank you, I need food. And it's who? In the lion's mind, no scientist can get into a lion's mind, but God tells us what they're thinking. God, give me food. That's what the word of God says. When the sun rises, the lions, they steal away and lie down in their dens. And thankfully they do that. And man goes out to his work and he labors until the evening. The lions are to get their prey one way and mankind gets his food another way. And what the, what the psalmist is saying here is that it all comes from God whose grand design spoken by his word, sustained by the spirit of God, by Jesus Christ who controls all things, God is feeding his creation. The miracle of the sun and moon, the darkness and the light. Um, the Lord made the sea and all its inhabitants. Verses 24 through 26, it returns to the sea. Um, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have created them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and the Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. It's interesting that the psalmist moves back to the sea once he's already talked about the sea and the boundaries. He's talking about the sea in a, a different way here. Um, how, he says how manifold, how variated, how incredible, how, how your works are. You're, in your wisdom, you've made everything. The earth is full of your creatures. He's talked about land animals. Now he's talking about sea animals, but he's talking about it in a particular way because 
Um, they had the Sea of Galilee. They were fishermen on that sea, but they were not ocean. The Israelites were not ocean-going sea people. That was chaotic. Even the Sea of Galilee, we see that, the tempests that would come, the winds that would blow, and, and um, the storms that were on that. They were afraid, for the most part, of the sea. But what is it saying here? It, it's, he's looking out, and he's seeing, like, there go the ships. And what? The Leviathan. Will any of you young ones know what the Leviathan is? We could give you some hints and clues that are in, in the scriptures. But I think the bottom line is we're not really sure. But the best way I think I can describe it is it's a sea monster. That's what it is. Let your imagination go wild. That's what it is. And so here this, the psalmist is saying, look at the ship. It's going on the sea. And yet underneath the sea is this sea monster. But notice... Notice what has happened, which you formed. What is this sea monster doing? He's playing. The sea monster that plays. So here you have what he's saying is like, he's saying, look, God created the sea. It's expanse. It's full of creatures. I think the psalmist is saying, I, I don't know a whole lot about the sea, but I see the ships and I see how the sea monster plays and how even in the chaos of the sea, you're in control. You've made it all. It's all, even the things that I don't understand, you've formed and you've formed for a purpose. Because the Leviathan to you, God, is what? The sea monster is God's pet. That's, that's how he's describing it. Next, what we see, and finally you see the Lord's um, spirit controls what? Everything, life, death, but most of all, recreation. Renewal, and that comes in verse 30. And really, um, the, the last part um, of this section, um, verse 30, really is um, that hinge. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it, they gather it up. Notice here how it is God who is providing when you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. And then verse 30. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Right here we see creation and the promise of complete redemption. You know, we see that it is by the Spirit of God. In Luke, 1, Luke, Luke chapter 1, it says that it was Jesus himself that was conceived in Mary by what? The Holy Spirit. Jesus, when he's speaking with, with Nicodemus, um, he answers Nicodemus and he says this, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel at this thing that I have said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows 
wherever it wishes. You hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In Acts 1, we read more about the work of God and God's Spirit. Luke writes, after his suffering, Jesus presented himself alive to the apostles by many convincing proofs and appeared to them for 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard of me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You see, it was the Holy Spirit that would equip the apostles in their task for the kingdom of God. It's God's Spirit that equipped who else? He equipped the prophets. It is the Spirit of God that equipped the kings um, for their task in the Old Testament. So God's Spirit as well, we see in Acts, would equip the apostles and the church. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What was Esther's sin? Well, if you think it was the beauty pageant, you're, the Bible doesn't actually condemn her for that. So neither should we if the text doesn't say a whole lot about that. It was not witnessing. It was not, it wasn't bearing the name that God had given her because the whole story of Esther turns on that hinge when she reveals who she is. God is working to, by his spirit to reveal who he is in creation and through his covenant people to all the world. That's what this psalm is about. And it says, when you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. So God is working today. And he's working through his covenant people to renew the whole earth, all of creation. I want to, I want to come back to the, to the baskets, to the buckets. I want to come back to challenge your framework. Are you engaged with that very form? That the Spirit of God said, that Jesus himself said the Spirit of God was in and through, which is the local church. Right? Are you here to serve the local church because you believe that by serving and submitting to the covenant community in the word of God, you will be shaped? Or are you here primarily to get your needs met? And will you walk away and say, you know, I just, you know, I, I didn't care for that, or I didn't like that, or I didn't. But yet there's, if the church is faithful, the church is faithful to what? The church is faithful to to reenact the forms that shape God's people every single week. We're not here simply on Sunday morning for a cognitive or entertainment exercise. We are here to be shaped 
by God's word and God's people, word and table in community. That's what God is doing. I want to challenge you to really think about how you're thinking. Because you say, well, you're preaching to the choir. I am. But I think the reality is in a lot of evangelicalism is over here. They just don't know. Now, there's some that still might be here. But this gives way to this. That's what we're seeing outside the church. But that's what we're seeing in the church. And what we need to be called is we need to be called back to a God who by his word speaks creation into being. And that God, by his word, transforms people and forgives sin through the work of Jesus Christ. That's this over here. But the problem is, is we're too focused on ourselves. And when we're focused on ourselves, we give in to paganism because we expect the world to be conformed to our image and our likeness and the things that we like. Instead of, may the glory of God Endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who's rejoicing? The Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. Now. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord. Listen, verse 33 is perhaps the most costly verse if you are Christian today. Right, the, we, we are a kingdom of priests. Our sacrifice is a sacrifice of praise. That's why we're called to sing, and we ought to sing. We ought to sing lustily, powerfully. When we get together, we ought to sing well, because that is what we're bringing. It is the reflection of the Old Testament sacrifice is reenacted in the church in the form of singing. They didn't have it. And it, it, they didn't have it at temple. It's developed in minor ways through, through you know, they didn't have it at tabernacle. And then we see the development of song, but we see it most clearly in the New Testament. When the, the, the animal sacrifice goes away, the singing comes into full display in the New Testament. It says, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing my praise to God while I have my being. So I dare you, walk out of these walls and start to say, God did that. It's a windy day. That must be the angels. People literally going to think you're crazy. Right? Oh, God created the world. How did that happen? Well, on a, one day, he decided that there was going to be light and darkness without the sun and moon. And then he created the sun and the moon, and then he, he spoke a few other things in a few more days and finished the whole project in six and took it easy on the seventh. Begin to develop a different rhythm. Actually, stop working. Work that you do the rest of the week at 6 p.m. on a Saturday night and don't resume till 6.01 on a Sunday night. Do that with conviction and make it the Lord's day and be refreshed in that so that you sing to the Lord as long as you live. You see, 
the, the world doesn't want these forms right here. The world is rejecting creation and saying, we can, we can make men whatever we want and women whatever we want so that we have birthing parents and chest milk. It's a war against the forms. And while we condemn it in the world, we better be really careful that the very things that we condemn, that we ourselves, in a way with the church, the way that God works covenantally, that we are not rejecting that as well. And that's where may the meditation, may my meditation. So let us think on that. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. And then notice this. It comes at the very end, and it is striking. But if you understand what's taking place here, it is not striking. Because what it is, is it's saying, let, let those who reject the forms and function that God has ordained, let them be consumed. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Lord, we pray that you would use your word in our hearts and our lives. Uh, we thank you that you have forgiven us of sin and um, that you use your word um, to, in your spirit to convict us. So Lord, may we learn uh, the liturgy of forms that you have created in creation. You work in particular ways and you tell us that by your word. And then your spirit works to conform us to your image and form us by creation and by the word. So may we submit and come to you. And we thank you that you welcome us to your table. Um, for we are sinners. Um, you, you come to us and you say, um, you are mine. And you welcome us by your grace. There's nothing that we could do to be accepted in your sight if it wasn't for your hesed love, your steadfast love, your covenant-keeping faithfulness. So we're thankful that when we are not faithful, you are always faithful. Lord, we pray that you would bless your church today, even as we gather around your table. In your name we pray, amen.